November 2nd, 1930. The Cathedral of St. George in the city of Addis Ababa. Holly Selassie was crowned, this was his official title, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and Conquering Lion of the Tribe of Judah, Elect of God. More commonly and simply, he was known as the Emperor of Ethiopia. Accounts of the coronation of the emperor tell us that, quote, one of the newspaper accounts said that the the coronation was by all accounts a most splendid affair. It was attended by royals and dignitaries from all over the world. There were representatives from the United States, from Egypt, Turkey, Sweden, Belgium, and Japan at the coronation. British author Evelyn Waugh was there. She wrote a contemporary report on the event. You can actually read about it. An American travel lecturer, this was 1930, a man by the name of Burton Holmes shot the only known film footage of the event. So you can actually watch this. One newspaper report suggested that the celebration itself may have incurred a cost of over three million dollars in 1930. Many of those in attendance at the celebration, at the coronation, received lavish gifts. And in one instance, this self-titled conquering lion of the tribe of Judah even sent a a, a gold-encased Bible to an American bishop who could not attend the coronation, but who had dedicated a prayer to the emperor on the day of his crowning. Have I mentioned that the emperor, Haile Selassie, called himself king of kings, lord of lords, and conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, elect of God? The emperor remained a a lifelong communicant member of the Ethiopian Orthodox Tiwahado Church. I probably pronounced that wrong. Um, This is part of the Oriental Orthodox Communion of Churches, which is related to the Eastern Orthodox Um, churches, but they split away from them over the issue of Christology, their understanding of Christ. Imagine that. But even more than that, the emperor has come to represent a, a Messiah figure, we can tell by what he called himself, a Messiah figure not just in his own mind, but really for the entire Rastafarian religion. Excuse me. Marcus Garvey, um, who was a native of Jamaica, he lived most of his life in the United States, and in the early 20th century was a central leader in, leader in the American, um, really the early civil rights movement in the United States. You may have heard of Marcus Garvey. <clears throat> well, what's significant is that Garvey also advocated in his teaching a return to Africa as, as almost a, a mystical ideal. And for many, this kind of idea of a return to Africa was a spiritual call. I'm sorry. He was not the um, founder of Rastafarianism. It's actual Jamaican grassroots. However, the the, uh, grassroots founders of this religion heard in one of Garvey's speeches given in 1920 where he said this. He said, look to Africa. When a black king shall be crowned, for the day of deliverance is at hand. And Rastafarians believe to this day that Garvey predicted the coronation of Haile Selassie. 
And even today, among the Rastafarian movement, whose followers, by the way, estimate between 700,000 and a million people around the world, Haile Selassie is revered as the returned Messiah of the Bible, God incarnate. So beginning in Jamaica in the 1930s, the Rastafarian movement believed and taught that Haile Selassie was this messianic figure, indeed the the return of Christ who will lead a, a future golden age of eternal peace and righteousness and prosperity. But unfortunately for him, and you know how the story goes, a severe famine in Ethiopia in 1973 led to Selassie's removal from the throne. And in 1994, not that long ago, an Ethiopian court found several former military uh, officers guilty of strangling him to death in his bed back in 1975 following a coup. But even today, most Rastafarians reject reports of his death. They believe it's a government cover-up. Throughout the history of mankind, there have been men who have seen themselves as this kind of royal messianic figures. Charlemagne. His official title was Charles, most serene Augustus crowned by God, the great peaceful emperor ruling the Roman Empire. There have been many others who have come to rule nations and empires, and yet these men have succumbed to those two great defeating traps that have ensnared so many great leaders, pride and death. And so today we come in our study to John's, of John's gospel to what is most commonly known as the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. The church is sometimes, um, it's John chapter 12, we'll read it here in a moment. The church has sometimes made this Sunday into a holiday, but not always. Typically Palm Sunday is used as a, as a preparation for Easter Sunday, um, Resurrection Sunday comes the following week, and that can be appropriate. But there's no New Testament example of any special church celebrations for this day. But when we come to this passage, we can't help but see the significance of what is happening right here in this text. And so while I don't advocate creating special church holiday or holy days where there isn't one, we do need to see the significance of the events in the, of these events in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And later, as we will come to understand, as they come to understand as well, the significance of these events for his followers. So as we read this passage this morning, I want to First of all, point out that Matthew, Mark, and Luke also all record this event in their writings. And for the most part, their accounts are actually a little bit longer than John's account, um, a little bit more detailed in some areas. But John is, really, he has a different emphasis. And it's really on Jesus' royalty. The others may depict him as worshipped, but like a lamb led to the slaughter. John really depicts him as royal. This is a royal entry. So we're going to focus on John, of course, but I would encourage you later to go ahead and find those other passages and read them um, maybe this afternoon. John chapter 12, I'm going to read just verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. 
So they took palm branches or branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him that day was that they heard that he has done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that we are gaining, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Just stop and pray right here. <clears throat> Father, I pray that, um, that I would decrease and that Christ would increase as we look at this passage that we would make much of the King of Israel, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and that we would truly and genuinely cry, Hosanna. We pray in Jesus' name. To call this um, passage the triumphal entry, if you were there that day, or if you looked back on it a week later, you might think that that was almost short-sighted. It wasn't really the right... Name Because within a week of this, the crowds would turn on Jesus. Within a week of this, Jesus would be arrested, tried more than once. He would be handed over to the Roman soldiers and crucified. In fact, if this were Holy Week, these, those things would happen. If, if this was happening today on Palm Sunday, those things would happen on Thursday and Friday of this week. And Jesus would be in the tomb before nightfall, Friday night, since the sunset on Friday marked the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath. Just a few days. Yet he has just previously, in the last couple of days probably, he has just triumphed over the death of Lazarus. The previous day, just the day before, his closest friends, his disciples, they held a banquet in his honor, and he was anointed king. Yet John only mentions the anointing of his feet as Mary worships him, and even unbeknownst to her, probably, prepares his body for burial, even though he explains that. But as Christians here today, on this side of the Lord's Day, on this side of Good Friday, we know that Jesus was triumphant over sin and death. We know that Jesus was triumphant, that he was victorious over our greatest enemy. Even death on a cross. So there is some almost bittersweet irony in these verses. The crowds shouting his praise as he heads into the city that will soon turn into a mob demanding his removal from the city. And execution. As Christians with a hope for the future, we can see that the coming triumph of Christ, we can see that, that it is yet to come when everything sad comes untrue, when all heaven breaks loose. But the people at this first Palm Sunday, they didn't 
They didn't really recognize Jesus' messiahship. They didn't really recognize what was genuinely happening here. These crowds didn't really understand who the Messiah would be or even who he was as he rode past them today. There are for us, as we look through this, undertones of sadness and mourning in this celebratory scene. Luke, in his account of this, he even follows this scene with this from Luke 19, verses 41 and 42. And when he drew near the city and saw it, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. While the crowd lining the road was shouting, Hosanna, Jesus is is once again weeping this time over the unbelief of Jerusalem. And this scene, these verses here, which are highly public, this is all a highly public scene, this stands really in marked contrast to the intimacy of his anointing in the, in the previous scene when he ate with his disciples and his friends and Mary anointed his feet with perfume. But no matter how we see this scene, either the, in the immediate context of the crowds who will soon turn on him, or in view of the, uh, the larger triumph of our Messiah, it's hard not to see this as, as a royal entry. It's hard not to see this as a victorious king returning to his royal city as his adoring subjects shout praises to his name. And so for this morning, I want to refer to this as the as the triumphant royal entry. And as we do, as we think about the royalty of this, I want to break this scene into four parts. Uh, The first is the royal processional. It's really verses 12 and 13, the royal processional. And the next is the royal entrance, verses 14 and 15. The royal processional, the royal entrance. The third is the royal explanation in verse 16, as a, a narrator explains what's going on. And then the final response is a royal response in verses 17 to 19. So a royal processional, a royal entrance, a royal explanation, and a royal response. Let's look at the royal processional. Look again at verses 12 and 13. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Right at the outset of this, John paints this picture of every traveler, every pilgrim in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration coming out of the city to line the road along the hillside to greet Jesus. He calls it a large crowd. It's so big that in the final verse, in verse 19, the Pharisees complain that the whole world has gone after him. And John John knows large crowds. Back in chapter 6, he told about a, about a large crowd that had followed Jesus to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And that large crowd, same words, that numbered about 5,000 men plus their families. You remember Jesus feeding them with five loaves of bread and two fish. It may be an exaggeration to say that everyone in Jerusalem came out to see him, but it is a massive crowd. 
Historians tell us that there were probably about 100,000 people living in the city of Jerusalem, in the city at this time. But for the Passover, there could have been up to a million travelers there. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, actually said there were 2.7 million, but most modern historians think that must have been an exaggeration. At any rate, there's a huge crowd that has gone out to see Jesus. And so it's probably the first day of the week, Sunday, and somehow this large crowd has come to, that had come to the feast, somehow they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem from the village of Bethany, which is just a couple of miles down the hill. We're not sure how the word of his arrival spread, um, but probably in the same way that it had when he faced that other large crowd back in chapter 6. In fact, I want to remind you of the crowd in chapter 6 and how the word spread. Verses 22 to 24 back there says this, On the next day, that is the day after he fed them, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. Remember, he walked across the sea instead. But the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Here's the point. When people heard that Jesus had performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, they came from all over the area to find him. Now... He has performed a miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, and the same thing is happening again. But this time, they're already in Jerusalem for the feasts. They're already in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And so it's safe to assume also that many of them were probably from Galilee, which is where he had spent the majority of his time ministering. So they were familiar with his ministry anyway. They knew who this guy was. But as we've worked our way through the gospel according to John, we've seen that John really doesn't spend a lot of time on his miraculous signs. In fact, he only picks a few out specifically to tell about. Um, Tells of a few specific instances, but the other gospels tell us things uh, things like this from Mark. Mark's gospel, after Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law, this happened. This is Mark 1, 32 and 33. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered at the door. Later, he healed a man with leprosy. And when he asked that man not to talk about it, verse 45 says that he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Then in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And the great crowd heard that what he was doing, they came to him. There are many other scenes just like those. Jesus was well known, and great crowds of people believed that he just might be their Messiah. This guy just might be the Messiah. Let's go see him. Where it is that he's just raised somebody from the dead. Why do people think like this? When Holly Selassie, when he visited Jamaica for the first time, 
great crowds mobbed his plane so that he couldn't even get off. He, he couldn't get off the airplane. Why are people so hungry for a Messiah? Why are people so hungry for a Savior? Do you remember the disciple Nathaniel? Do you remember what he said to Jesus the first time he met him? He said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He said that because Jesus had said that he had seen him under a fig tree before they had even met. Because of that, because Jesus said, I saw you under a fig tree before we met, Nathanael proclaimed Jesus to be the King of Israel. Jesus actually kind of pumps the brakes on that a little bit. says, wait a minute, you're going to see better signs than this. It's almost like people are just itching for a Messiah. They're just itching for a Savior. Think of the people in Jesus' day. Think of the prophecies of the Old Testament that they, that they probably knew by heart. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Just listen to this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's easy to emphasize certain words or phrases, isn't it? Especially when we have a a notion of what salvation looks like. Especially when we're living under the oppression of an unjust government, which is what they were, the Romans. Isaiah 11, 1 says, There shall come forth from a shoot, from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its root shall bear fruit. And then in Amos chapter 9, verse 11, it says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its branches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. The people, the people of ancient Israel, the people of Jesus' day, were waiting for a sprout from the stump of Jesse. They were waiting for the, for the booth of David that had fallen. They were waiting for the one of whom it was said, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. They were waiting for David's descendant to ascend to his throne. And it had been over 400 years since Malachi had spoken on behalf of the Lord. They were waiting in silence for someone to come and sit on the throne of David and make their country great again. That's what they were waiting for. All four Gospels give the impression that, generally speaking, the the Jewish people understood the term Messiah, and and that they were waiting for His appearing, and yet they saw Him as a a man-king. They saw Him as a king like David, who was a a man after God's own heart, but, but still a man. They didn't understand that Jesus, while a man, a child who was born, a son who was given... They didn't understand that he is also called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and His kingdom is so much bigger and so much more everlasting than they understood. Yet the crowds assemble here because they are sure that the government will be on this man's shoulder. They are sure that the government will be on this man's shoulder and he will sit on the throne of David. Actually, John tells us that they they went out to meet him. That doesn't sound like much in English, but in in Greek, it's a common figure of speech that was used as as an official welcome for a newly arrived dignitary. They rolled out the, the red carpet, so to speak. This large crowd headed out from Jerusalem toward Bethany with palm branches. Palm branches were a a symbol of righteousness for the people of Israel. It's from Psalm 92 and other places. But by the time of Christ, because of the way things have gone spiritually with the people of Israel, the palm branch had really just sort of developed into more of a national symbol. Think of the waving of a flag. It spoke of support. It spoke of victory. It spoke of authority. And by this time, it even symbolized Jewish revolt from oppression. In the previous 400 years, there had been wars, the Maccabean revolts, and they had used the palm branch as a symbol of their independence. These large crowds were trying a different tactic that they had already tried at least once before, however. This is John chapter 6, verse 15, all over again. Do you remember what happened in John chapter 6, verse 15? Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again by the mountain to himself. They're not doing it by force this time, but they're clearly officially heralding Jesus as their king. But by the end of the week, in just a few, four days, because of their disbelief, because of their short-sightedness or really misinterpretation, misunderstanding of the Scriptures, by the end of the week, they're going to be disappointed in Him. And they're going to turn on Him severely. And as they provide Jesus with this royal processional, look at what they cry out. Hosanna! Hosanna! This is actually actually a Hebrew word. And it means literally, save us, or give salvation now, or even please help us. But again, by the time of Christ, it kind of had developed into a different meaning. These people were not really crying out to Him for salvation. This was really just a joyful greeting by then. So think of when we use the term often and kind of flippantly, hallelujah. We don't really mean it as praise God. Sometimes we do. But you hear it all the time out there, right? People will say, well, hallelujah. God be praised, but we don't really mean it. But look at what else they shouted. Not only did they shout, Hosanna, save us, but they also said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And with this proclamation, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they are quoting, or at least closely quoting, from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Psalm 118, 25 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Hosanna. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Last week, I told you that as pilgrims would 
would make their way up the hill, up the mountain toward the city of Jerusalem, toward the temple really, for the festivals, they would often, in groups of people, as they were making their way up the hill, they would sing the Psalms of Ascent, they're known as. It's Psalm 121 to 134. They would be singing those psalms as they ascended the mountain for worship. Well, there's another group of psalms called the the Hallel Psalms, uh, the praise psalms, Hallel, think hallelujah. And these Hallel Psalms are actually Psalm 113 to 118. And they were sung each morning during these various festivals by by the temple choir. And as they reached their climax, as they reached the end of Psalm 118, every man, every boy in the choir would wave palm branches as they sang this final stanza. It's, it, listen to the end of Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal, festal sacrifice with cords up, on the horns, up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. They would sing this as a choir and wave palm branches as people were coming towards the temple. Some would say then that this, what we're seeing here, really verse 13, that this was just a part of their regular festival pattern. They would sing this often and to everybody who, were, who, were, who was coming up to the temple. Um, but I, don't, I think it's more than that. I don't think it can be limited to that because the crowd actually defines who they believe it is who comes in the name of the Lord when they say, even the king of Israel. Even the king of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. On the one hand, they knew what they were saying. Here is he who saves us from Rome and restores to Israel her former glory. Hosanna, save us, O King. On the other hand, they had no idea who Jesus really was. And they had no idea what they were really proclaiming. In fact, he will say to Pilate at his trial, in John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus says this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. They didn't understand that. Jesus is king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but his kingdom is not simply a a kingdom of this world. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures throughout all generations. And there's a subtle point here that we shouldn't miss. Jesus accepts their praise. Jesus accepts their praise. He accepts their praise just like he did from Mary in the previous passage. Even if they don't understand the true meaning of what they're saying. He lets them say it. And he accepts it. There should be some comfort in that for us. Comfort in the fact that though there is much even here that we don't understand, we can still praise God. There should be comfort in this for us. I don't understand half what this guy is saying, but I can still praise God. 
There should be comfort in that for us. I don't understand a lot of what's going on in the Bible, but I can still praise God. There should be some comfort in that. But there should also be a little bit of discomfort too. Because most of the people in this crowd who, who, will, who are saying these things, who are praising him, most of them will abandon him and never return. Most do not believe in him. Most of them will perish in their sins. Though they proclaim, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, even though what they are saying is true, because they don't believe it, because they are not really one of his, they're going to walk away and never return. Singing songs and knowing scripture does not make you a child of God. You actually must be adopted into his family and have a seat at his table. You must repent of your sins and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You have to believe that. Jesus is King. And he accepts their praise. And in fact, he, he takes part in this royal entrance. So, so look at verses 14 and 15. This is a royal entrance. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The other, uh, the other gospels give more details here, especially when in, about the donkey and him finding it. But John kind of cuts to the chase. He cuts to the point here. He just simply says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. John presents this as, as Jesus' very clear response to the crowd's shouts. In fact, he, he actually is doing two symbolic acts here. First thing he's doing is, that is symbolic is he finds a donkey. Today, when we think of powerful kings... We tend to associate them with powerful horses before we associate them with lowly donkeys, right? Typically. But in the, in the ancient world, donkeys were seen as beasts of burdens par excellence, as they say. They were the best. They were used as a, as a mount for people of high social standing. The nobility would ride a donkey. The um, aristocracy would ride a donkey, even royalty. And so the fact that Jesus chose this animal was part of his response to the crowd. This was intentional. He understood how they would see this. Before, when they tried to, to uh, take him by force to make him king, he withdrew to the mountain by himself. But now he finds a donkey and he acts like a king. He accepts their praise as he ascends the mountain of God. And then, and then the second thing that he does, he sat on it. He does what a king would do. This is king, a kingly act in this society. In this scene, we can, we can presume, we can assume that pretty much everyone else is probably walking. Maybe there were some other carts of some sort, but probably pretty much everybody else is walking. So what Jesus does here is a conspicuous act. It's an act the crowds saw. And as we know from the other accounts, it's actually premeditated. He went and found the donkey and he sat on it. This is a kingly move. These crowds had seen Jesus heal the sick. 
Some have probably eaten of the five loaves and two fish. I think it's safe to say that some of the same people are there. They've heard him teach the scriptures and with authority. They saw Jesus walking, or they saw Lazarus walking and and eating after he had been dead and buried for three days. And when they praise him, when this crowd sings the Hallel for them, for him, he enters into the celebration like a king. And, And John adds, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. John tells us this is the fulfillment of prophecy. And just as kind of an aside right here, this is the difference between his second coming and his first. I I want you to just listen to how John describes how he will return from Revelation chapter 19. This is how Christ will return. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is a name that is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Here, in in John chapter 12, here he's coming in peace. He's coming with humility, yet he's coming as a king. But he will return as a warrior, as a judge, and as a king. John is probably in these verses when he, verse 15, when he says, just as it is written, he's probably um, referring to a combination of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, and Zechariah 9, 9, because he adds, fear not, To the beginning of, behold, your king is coming. Fear not, behold, your king is coming. He's painting a picture that their king is coming to them, but he's coming to them in humility and peace. But going back to that Revelation passage, if you read Zechariah chapter 9, which is what this is a quote from, you'll see pretty quickly that it's a prophecy. Zechariah 9 is a prophecy of judgment on those who oppose the king. It ends with this. The, the chapter 9, Zechariah 9, ends like this. The Lord of hosts will protect them. They shall devour and tread down the sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine. They will be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar with blood. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his own people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. The king's peace and humility, when we put these things together, his peace and his humility is based on the fact that he is for and not against the people for whom he comes. He is for them. This makes him no less less powerful, This makes him no less authoritative, but he is even more 
gracious and righteous and long-suffering because these same people, and he knows this, these same people will soon cry out, crucify him. Where now they cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They will soon shout, crucify him. They will reject this king. Zechariah is a prophecy that puts both both advents of Christ together, both his first and his second. And as Christ comes to his own people here, the test, the test for them is whether they will receive him as king, as this king, as, as gentle and mounted on a donkey, gentle and, and lowly of heart, as, as full of humility and peace. Well, if they'd rather wait and be forced to receive him as he is presented in Zechariah and also in Revelation as he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Either way, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. At the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. One way or another, we can accept him on the donkey or we can accept him on his great white horse. But even the disciples do not understand what they're seeing. And so John, looking back, um, writing these things later, he offers up really what is a royal explanation. A royal explanation. Look at verse 16. John says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, they mark a turning point for the disciples. Jesus promised them in John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. He says, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then in Acts chapter 1, it says this, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering, after his crucifixion, but yet resurrected by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And then we remember Acts 1.9 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. But at this point, at this point, they don't understand the nature of Jesus' kingdom. Everyone, including the, the 12 disciples, they only saw the possibility of an earthly kingdom. After his resurrection, Acts chapter 1 says that he spends 40 days explaining the kingdom of God to them. And then when he gives them the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit empowers them to be witnesses for the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth, empowers and and explains these things. He will teach you all things, he says to them, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now they don't understand, but soon they will. They only see the possibility at this point of an earthly kingdom, but Jesus is a king of a heavenly kingdom. And it won't be until after the sacrifice of the lamb that was slain that his disciples would understand the deeper meaning of all that they are witnessing here. One author said, and I like this image, it's only when, the God, when God by his Spirit 
Remove the cataracts of a distorted human kingship from their eyes that the disciples understood the nature of King Jesus. It's only when God took away the cataracts from their eyes that they could understand who this King Jesus was. Our prayer today is that we would have eyes to see as well, that we would understand who this Jesus is, that we would see that we need to offer up a a royal response even to our King of Kings. These last few verses, they really are a mirror of the end of the last section. Let me read 17 uh, to 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. They're still talking about him. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard that he has done this sign. Most of them didn't see him do it, but they've heard about it. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. They really mirror the end of the last section. People are still talking about the signs that they've seen. They're talking about what they've heard about, about this Jesus. There's a distinct feeling in this that the the crowd went out that day for the same reason that the crowds pretty much always went out to him. They wanted to see some sign. They wanted to see some kind of proof or they wanted him to meet their needs. Even, Even their need for a king. They wanted him to be their king and the Pharisees notice all of this. They see it all unfolding. And so the question that I have for you today as we finish is just... Just this simple question. Will he still be your king next week? For this crowd, and I've given you a glimpse of the future because we know how this turns out for him. For this crowd, he is not their king next week. On Thursday night, they arrest him. By Friday, he's on the cross. He's a king right now. Will he still be a king next week? Will he, will he still be your king when it looks like he isn't living up to your expectations? Will he still be your king when he dies? Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that he is who he says he is? Or are we like one of the masses following someone like Holly Selassie? Or someone like David Koresh, another one who thought he was a Messiah. There's actually a list, a whole list throughout the centuries of people who have thought that they were Messiah. And others who believed that and followed them typically to the death. Is Jesus really our Messiah? Is he really our King? Is he really our Savior? Are you willing to really pray sincerely, Hosanna, Save me. Blessed be he. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. That's the question I want to leave you with this morning. Are we really willing to say that? Hosanna, save us, save me. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Let's pray. Father, as we read these, As we read this statement that the crowds make, it is my prayer that when we sing this next song, O Worship the King, that we would sing this 
with hearts that have been washed pure. That we would sing this from not of hearts of stone, but of hearts of flesh that have been replaced by you. And even though we don't understand all that we say, all that we sing, what it means to worship our King, what it means to proclaim Hosanna, save me, that we would sing this trusting that you are who you say you are, that Jesus Christ really is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He really is the one sent by God to save your people from our sins. Father, help us to believe these things, to worship our King. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.